Section 12 of The Beginning of the Middle Ages by Richard William Church. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 6. The Roman Empire in the East. Part 1. While in the West, civilized order was disturbed and broken up, to be reconstructed on a new basis, in the East, it went on continuously from the days of Constantine till its temporary interruption by the Crusaders, 1203 to 1261, and its destruction by the Ottomans in 1453. Constantine had transplanted the Roman name, the center of Roman power, and much of what was Roman in ideas and habits to Byzantium, the new Rome. There, without losing its deeply impressed imperial character, it also became Greek, and it became Christian. The result was that remarkable empire which, though since its fall it has become a byword, was, when it was standing, the wonder and the envy of the barbarian world, the mysterious Micklegarth, the great city, the town of towns of the northern legends. It inherited and it retained the great Roman traditions of centralization, of scientific jurisprudence, of elaborate and systematic administration. It worked upon an unbroken experience of government, on unbroken habits of organization, as familiar and easy to it as it was difficult in the West. It improved and perfected the great legacy which it had received of republican and imperial law. It often exhibited what seemed to be hopeless feebleness and decay, but beneath these appearances were the permanent elements of vast and enduring strength. Amid the convulsions and changes of the West, it lasted unchanged for more than ten centuries, almost the same in language, in spirit, and even in its ways and forms, under the last Constantine as under the first. For ten centuries, in spite of terrible disasters, bloody revolutions, loss of provinces, domestic misrule, itself, maimed, weakened, unprosperous, it yet maintained itself, the unaided outpost of Christendom, against the fiercest assaults not only of swarming barbarian hordes, but of the victorious enthusiasts of Islam. It had indeed in full measure the vices of an over-cultivation, which is not braced by a corresponding moral force and elevation. Much in it was degenerate, hypocritical, effete, corrupt, degraded. It had many of the faults of European civilization in the 18th century. But it is idle to talk of mere weakness in an empire which for a thousand years preserved civilized society, laws, institutions, commerce, arts, amid the most tremendous shocks and dangers which could bear to be so badly, cruelly, feebly governed, as certainly it often was, without falling to pieces before its enemies. In truth, during all the dark days of trouble in the West, contemporary with its rude attempts and beginnings of social order, there was on the Bosphorus one of the most magnificent cities that the world has seen. In it, as at Rome and at Venice, was centralized a power strong in its resources of government, in its experience and skill to use its vast materials and its varied populations, in the great wealth created by an extended and active commerce, 
in the knowledge how to apply it, in the possession of all the mechanical and scientific experience of those ages. In it ruled a succession of men most various in character and fortune, many very bad and very incapable, but among them a large proportion who were of the stamp and force of those who save states. In it the literary tradition inherited from Antioch, from Athens, from Alexandria still survived, and though taste and power might decline, they never failed as they did in the West, and they sometimes rose to a respectable standard. And in it the visitor from the rude West might find a court with its pomp and luxury, its refinement, its politeness, its etiquette, which long after the days of Charles, Alfred, and Otto was to the courts of the Franks and English what the courts of Versailles and St. James were to the court of Peter the Great. The Eastern Empire did not at once, either after the partition between the sons of Theodosius in 395, or after the deposition or abdication of the last Western Emperor in 476, lose its connection with the West. Long after the separation, in fact, had come, the idea of the unity, the unanimitas of the empire, lasted. The Eastern Emperor Zeno, 474 to 491, had received from Odoacer the insignia of the dethroned Augustulus, in token that the world only needed one emperor and he was acknowledged in form and courtesy at least by Goths and Franks as the head of the Roman world. Further, he was so acknowledged by the popes, who were becoming more and more the centres of genuine Roman influence amid the visible triumph of the new races, and it was long before the hope and purpose of exacting real obedience were abandoned at Constantinople. In one signal instance, this purpose was victoriously carried out. This was the reconquest of Italy, Africa, and part of Spain under Justinian. In the year after the great Theodoric died in 526, the most famous in the line of eastern emperors since Constantine began his long and eventful reign, 527 to 567. Justinian was born a Slavonian peasant near what then was Sardica and is now Sophia. His original slave name, Aprada, was Latinized into Justinian when he became an officer in the imperial guard. Since the death of the second Theodosius in 450, the eastern emperors had been as they were continually to be, men not of Roman or Greek, but of barbarian or half-barbarian origin, whom the imperial city and service attracted, naturalized, and clothed with civilized names and Roman character. Justinian's reign, so great and so unhappy, was marked by magnificent works, the administrative organization of the empire, the great buildings at Constantinople, the last and grandest codification of Roman law but it was also marked by domestic shame, by sanguinary factions, by all the vices and crimes of a rapacious and ungrateful despotism. Yet it seemed for a while like the revival of the power and fortune of Rome. Justinian rose to the highest ideas of imperial ambition, and he was served by two great masters of war, foreigners in origin like himself, Belisarius the Thracian, 
and Narses the Armenian, who were able to turn to full account the resources still enormous of the empire, its immense riches, its technical and mechanical skill, its supplies of troops, its military traditions, its command of the sea. Africa was wrested from the Vandals in 534, Italy from the successors of Theodoric, much of Spain from the West Goths. The Vandals were absolutely swept away, though Africa never recovered from their century of misrule. Italy was more fiercely disputed, 535 to 553. According as Belisarius was absent or present, the contest swayed backwards and forwards. Rome was more than once taken and retaken. Totila the Goth, able, brave, and dangerous, at one moment had it in his power, and had actually taken the momentous resolution to destroy the city of Rome from the face of the earth. But what Belisarius began, Narses finished. Totila was slain, the Gothic power perished in 553. Yet the reconquest was transient. After Narses came the Lombards in 568, and then the Saracens. It was not the destiny of Byzantium to rule the world or to govern alien and distant provinces. It retired within its eastern borders. But it long kept a hold on maritime districts in Italy, Ravenna, the Pentapolis, Calabria, and Naples. For a still longer time it held Sicily. It gave titles to barbarian kings like Clovis and legalized their conquests. Until the great change in the opening of the ninth century, it kept not merely its exarch at Ravenna, but its count at Rome, and claimed and sometimes compelled the allegiance of the popes. The emperor, regarded as invested with an almost divine commission, inherited the despotic powers of the line of Augustus and Constantine, and according as he used this vast power with ability or weakness, the fortune of the empire rose and fell. Yet the empire itself was held together by great networks and scaffoldings of long date and of immense strength and tenacity, which subsisted independently of what the emperor did or suffered, and which to a certain degree limited his absolute power. There was a great system of local government and another of civil administration, and there was a powerful and popular church, identified with the interests and sympathies of the people and much mixed up with them, even in its monastic elements. And whatever might become of the emperor, there was in the empire itself a stability and a solidity of which there is yet no trace in the West. It had all the vices, the weaknesses, the failures of a despotic government of the modern type. But it had also the experience, the trained habits of order and industry, the enlightenment and the resources, which distinguish civilized governments, whether free or absolute, from the unpracticed apprenticeship of those whose political history is yet beginning, and which under ordinary circumstances impart firmness and strength unattainable without them. What is certain is that the Eastern Empire was able to withstand the continued pressure of its ever-renewed enemies with continued success. It suffered fearfully in the effort. The Avars, the Turkish Bulgarians, the Hungarian Magyars, the many tribes of the Eastern Slavs, 
the Persians, and at last the Saracens, the Mughals, the Seljuks, and the Ottomans, assaulted, insulted, maimed the empire. Besides them came enemies equally formidable, the rough Frankish and Norman counts and barons who led the first crusade in 1096, the more ambitious ones who with the merchant princes of Venice led the fourth in 1203. The empire passed through the greatest vicissitudes of prosperity and disaster. Province after province was rent away from it. Its population was thinned, its wealth destroyed by ravages which it could not check. It lost Africa, Spain, Egypt, Syria, Asia up to the Bosphorus. It was hemmed in by Bulgarians and Slavs in Europe. Yet during these centuries of defensive war, and often of misfortune, the empire resisted, and in spite of all it cultivated the arts and industries of peace, as they were cultivated nowhere else in Europe and showed in Constantinople a capital which in splendor and magnificence no other realm could rival. The continuation of the old traditions of civilization amid the turbulence and the uncertainties of Western Europe is the characteristic feature of interest in the Eastern Empire. It had indeed, as a finished despotism, much that was evil, much that involved ultimate ruin. But besides its natural coherence and toughness, the mischiefs which endangered it were continually arrested by rulers of high and strong character. Time after time, when its fall seemed at hand, when faction or mutiny or vile court intrigues had shaken it, when the wickedness and folly of some tyrant or the madness and cruelty of some ambitious woman had coincided with the strength at the moment of some foreign barbarian to threaten its existence, it was redeemed and saved by some great or some able emperor. Fortune, as we call it, doubtless in its ten centuries must have counted for much in its wonderful escapes, in its many deliverances, but much was owing to the preponderance, in spite of all drawbacks, of superior civilization, experience, and intelligence. Terrible and revolting stories are common both to East and West, of bloodshed, treachery, and passion, but Byzantine vices, as well as virtues, unlike those of the West, are those of a society which has inherited a long training and cultivation. No writer of the tenth century in the West, certainly no emperor or king, could possibly have written on politics, history, geography, statistics, military tactics, agriculture, as the Byzantine emperor, born in the purple, Constantine Porphyrogenitus, 911 to 959. The difference between East and West in all that comes by long familiarity with the resources of cultivated intellect and by inherited skill cannot be better measured than by comparing his writings with the vigorous but rude compositions of the court of Charles the Great or the efforts of Alfred, noble as they were, to begin an English literature. Yet the Eastern Empire suffered even more than the West, from the neighborhood of its barbarian enemies. The tribes of the Hunnish or Turkish stock and the Slav races which had taken the places left vacant by the great Teutonic movement of the Vandals, Goths, and Lombards to the West, pressed continually on the Eastern Empire, as they did on the Franks, Bavarians, and Saxons, and with more disastrous effects. 
the countries to the south of the Danube between the eastern Alps, the Adriatic, the Euxine, and the mountains of Greece, gradually became filled with the Slav races, which, unlike the earlier Gothic tribes, became rooted there and have kept hold of them till this day. As usual, they began by ravaging and ended by occupation and settlement. But their restless and predatory habits long gave trouble to the empire. Its policy varied between keeping them quiet by annual subsidies, setting them as colonists to hold one another in check as Heraclius, 630-638, to brought down the Servians and Croats against the Avars, taking them into pay as soldiers, or inflicting chastisement by military expeditions. The Slavs, however, were many of them agricultural communities, and they colonized. But behind the Slavs were the more destructive Turks, in their various forms. Turks proper, first known by that name in the 6th century, with whom, in the heart of Central Asia, the Byzantine emperors kept up an interchange of ambassadors, and the nearer and more dangerous tribes of the same stock, the Avars and the Bulgarians, who had been conquered and fled before their eastern kindreds. All these tribes, Turkish or Slav, pushed their expeditions sometimes to the walls of Constantinople, and no province of the empire was safe from them. Its military power, when fairly brought against them, was in the long run too strong for them. The Huns of Zabergan were driven off in the last victory gained by Belisarius in 559. The Avars and their Slavonian allies were humbled by the generals of the Emperor Maurice, 589-600. to But the control of the empire never became strong enough to enforce peace and order in the countries on the Danube. Barbarian kingdoms, like that of the Avars and then of the Bulgarians, rose and fell. In spite of all the insecurity and ruin, new nations, agricultural as well as pastoral, grew up in a rude fashion, yet with definite traditions and with peculiar institutions, in the rich plains and the highlands between the Adriatic and the Euxine. Such were the western agricultural Slavs whom Heraclius planted between the Danube and the Adriatic, and who became the Croats, Servians, and Bosnians of later history. In time, the Slav races and those which, like the Bulgarians, adopted their language and became fused with them, received Christianity. The German missionaries from the Frank Empire encountered among them the Greek brother apostles of the Slavs, Cyril and Methodius of Thessalonica, 860-885. The translators of the scriptures, perhaps the inventors of the Slav alphabet, certainly among the most indefatigable missionaries of the Christian church. Partly in concert, partly in rivalry, the German bishops and the Greek monks labored to teach and humanize the Slavs. The Latin and Greek churches strove and often intrigued for the allegiance of the Slav converts. In the western countries they became obedient to the Pope. In the territories of the empire, Bulgarians and Servians, as after them the Russians, accepted the teaching of the Eastern Church, brought to them in their mother tongue. But the northern border of the empire was a land in which disorder and lawlessness became chronic, and a great state, of which scientific law was one of the characteristic features, was powerless to leave the impression of law on the barbarian settlers within its territories. End 
of section 12.